Good morning. My name is Jeremiah. Today's reading comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are, are read. Again, that's 1 John chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in nursery, preschool, and third through fifth grade, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Commons upstairs. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. We proclaim to you the one who exists from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him and now we testify him and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, parents and guardians of children in nursery, preschool, and third through fifth grade, you are invited to escort your kids to Kids Commons at the back of the room. Well, good morning again. Again, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. Um, I hope hope you've had a decent start to 2024. Uh, It feels like I haven't seen so many of you in so long between our traveling and uh, snow day last week. I I will say, though, that snow day was a reprieve in some ways. It's like when you have all your homework ready, and then you're good. But then, like, snow day, and so you don't have to do anything. So I felt like for, like, one or two days there, I had all this freedom um, where I couldn't go anywhere or do much of anything. And I was able to slow down and actually enjoy life at a relatively normal pace for once. And that's the invitation I actually want to extend to all of you this morning is to slow down and to pay attention to your soul. So I'd invite you to join me in a moment of silence and in prayer as we get ready to hear from the Lord. Lord, we're thankful for this space and this time and this opportunity to gather together here in your name and for your sake. Uh, knit us together with your spirits and guide us to be in close relationship with you and with, with each other um, for your name and so that this world would see the kind of kingdom and the kind of God that you are. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So growing up, I remember this commercial. Uh, It was 1991 when it came out by a makeup company called Maybelline, which some of you might know or recognize, the Maybelline commercial, that ushered in a brand new campaign slogan slogan for the company Maybelline. Uh, It replaced their old campaign slogan, and their old campaign slogan was Maybelline. Ooh la la. So uh, (laughs) I think there's like nowhere to go up from that if you ask me. So their new campaign slogan, uh, this is how the commercial starts. It starts with a uh, caption, and it says, some faces look fine. And then it shows the face of what I consider to be a quite beautiful woman, black and white photo. I guess her face is just fine. And then we see a color photo of a different woman sauntering the streets of New York or something. And it says, others look perfect. And the commercial ends with the tagline, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. And the whole premise is that Maybelline makeup is so good, so subtle, so natural that you can't even tell a person's wearing it. 
Just buy some Maybelline and you will fool everyone. Maybe she's born with it. Well, in the past 33 years, we've only gotten better at fabricating reality. We've got more than makeup. We have filters on our phones and apps. We, uh, if that's not dramatic enough for you, then you can join the 1.5 million Americans who went under the knife in 2022 for liposuction or breast augmentation or a tummy tuck or eyelid surgery or a facelift. And if that's too invasive for you, then you can join the 24 million Americans who have, in the past year, Botoxed away their wrinkles or enhanced their lips with hyaluronic acid or removed facial fat to slenderize their cheeks. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe she's had some work done. The line between what's real and what's manipulated is blurrier and blurrier. It's not just our appearances, it's everything. Computer generated imagery is everywhere. And when it's great, Avatar, we love it. When it's not so great, cats, the criticism is relentless. And then there's artificial intelligence, right? So AI can drive our cars for us. It can shop for us. It can diversify our investments for us. It can tell us what we'd like to watch or what we'd like to listen to. Siri, Alexa, Google Assistant can read us a story and tell us a joke and turn on our Christmas lights and tell us how the Celtics played last night. Chat GPT can write songs and write sermons and generate code and compose poetry in the style of a 19th century British poet. And we're only getting started. A new media company, Channel One AI, is rolling out a brand new news channel powered entirely by generative AI. Sports, finance, entertainment, international affairs, a global perspective, all personalized and delivered to you on demand in whatever language you prefer. Uh, on the 22-minute preview of Channel One AI, a journalist will tell you, you can hear us and see our lips moving, but no one was recorded saying what we're saying. I am powered by sophisticated systems behind the scene. She convincingly looks and sounds like a real person, but she was entirely digitally generated. It's getting harder and harder, harder and harder and harder and harder to tell what's real from what's not, which I find pretty unsettling, which... And what makes it even more unsettling is that it doesn't feel like we can do really anything to stop this train that we've all gotten on. It's left the station. This is the world we live in. The trouble is that I'm not really sure how to live in this world. Because at the end of the day, I still crave what's real. I crave something real. I don't just want to taste something that's like strawberry. I actually want to taste a real strawberry that came from a real plant that grew in the real ground. I want there to be something that is true, and for that truth to matter, I want connections with people to be real. I want their physical presence near me so that we can laugh and eat and fist bump and high five, and I want this, right? Not just virtual worship. But I'm not quite sure what that looks like anymore. And the question, what is real, isn't a new one. We're starting a new sermon series today on the letter that we know as First John, and we're calling it the gospel in real life. The gospel in real life, because it's John's articulation of the core, most important realities of the gospel that cannot be compromised, that cannot be changed, that are real. And John's going to camp out in this letter on three core images. He's going to talk about real life, he's going to talk about real light, and he's going to talk about real love. And this morning today, we're going to talk about that first thing, real life. As best we can tell, John wrote this letter because Christians and house churches in Ephesus and the ancient city that he was overseeing were in crisis. The church was dividing into rival factions with different ideas about what was real 
about the Christian faith. Now, this John is almost certainly the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. There are so many parallels in tone and style and substance between this letter and the Gospel that we think that these letters serve as a commentary, an explanation of some of the more confusing parts of the Gospel. He was clarifying his points. He was answering whatever questions that came up. And one of the most important questions that came up centered on the reality of Jesus. See, there was a whole school of thought in the ancient world, one that would later crystallize into a belief that is called Gnosticism, Gnosticism, fun word, that believed that the spiritual world was more real than the physical world. The spiritual world is the real thing, and the physical world is kind of a shadow, a poor version of the spiritual. The physical world was really messy and gross and complicated and ugly, but the spiritual world was perfect. The two worlds could have nothing to do with each other because they were so different. God, they considered, was perfect and holy and good, and God inhabited this perfect spiritual realm. And a human being's task, our task in this earth, is to separate ourselves from the corrupt physical world and get closer and more spiritually enlightened to be in the presence of God. And early Gnostics found a lot to like in John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was light, and that light was the life that gave light to all mankind. They loved those parts of John, where Jesus was transcendent and divine and eternal and above sort of our base realities. Other parts of John, they had some problems with. For instance, they were not comfortable with the idea of God having a real human body, experiencing real human limitations, suffering real human pain. So if Jesus was really God, Gnostics taught that anything pertaining to Christ's physical weakness or need or pain, that wasn't actually real. Jesus didn't really die on a cross. That would be ridiculous. He didn't die. He only appeared to die. And even if his body died, it was just his flawed human body. It wasn't his divine God part of him. So that didn't die. So to summarize the Gnostic thought in two sentences and probably not do them justice, they believed that Jesus was not a real person in the sense of our reality of our real bodies. In the lines that Jeremiah just read for us, John offers his rebuttal to that argument. John, uh, 1 John 1, 1. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have seen and whom we have heard. We have seen him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. You think Jesus wasn't real? We saw him. We touched him. He didn't just appear to be human. The word of life was real. John was there when Jesus turned real water into really good wine. John was there at the cross when Roman soldiers broke Jesus' real legs and pierced his real body. John saw real blood pour out of his wound. Thomas put his finger in that same wound when he doubted the reality of the resurrected Jesus. So when those within the church doubted that the word of life could also be a real person, John countered with his own personal experience. He and so many others saw and touched Jesus. On their testimony, Jesus was real. He was born, he lived, he died, he was real. And he was God. You see, John refused to pick between the two realities about Jesus. John adamantly, stubbornly doubles down on his conviction that Jesus was a real person and Jesus was really God. That's the mysterious, hard-to-wrap-our-brains-around core of the gospel. And it's because Jesus is really fully 100% God and really fully 100% human that we can actually, human beings, be in relationship with God at all. John calls it in these verses fellowship, verses 3 and 4. We proclaim to you what we have ourselves seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son 
And we are writing these things so that you may share the joy that we enjoy in this fellowship. You see, John insists that the Christians living and worshiping in house churches in Ephesus, even though they had not seen Jesus with their own eyes and touched Jesus with their own hands, they are still able to share in the same joyful fellowship that the father and son had and that the disciples shared. And John insists that every single person, every single person, even every person in this room who puts their faith in Jesus is swept into a connection with God that is real. As real as we can see, as real as what we can touch. Christian faith is not just doing ethical things and believing correctly. It's also experiencing real connection and joyful fellowship with God. You know, Christians like this collection of us, uh, we are not merely people who share sympathies for a common cause. We're not merely associates based upon our interests. We aren't united by ethnicity. We're not united by nationality. We're not united by skin color or how much money we make. No, each Christian person is connected to Christ and in Christ connected to the Father. And this connection is what makes Christian community special and unique. It's like each person is a thread woven into a tapestry that together forms the body of Christ. This is what the kingdom of God on earth looks like. And John says that this connection is possible through the activity of the Holy Spirit. God's real spiritual presence given to us by Christ. He says in the gospel in verse, or chapter 20, verse 22, a spirit that dwells within us and a spirit that's transforming us, every person who has faith in Christ. So, back to the original question. Is all of this real? Is this real? You know, the modern world is almost the opposite of the Gnostics in some ways. Gnostics thought that the spiritual world was real and the physical world was less real. But moderns tend to think that the physical world is what's real and the spiritual is less real or maybe not even real at all. It's the product of our overactive imaginations or our wishful thinking. It's a tool used by the powerful to placate the masses and to keep them in line. In the words of journalist Kelsey McKinney in a 2022 documentary called Hillsong Megachurch Exposed, which you might have seen, she said, are you crying because the Lord is staging some kind of intervention in your life? Or are you crying because the chord structure is built to make you cry? This is all just manipulation. So on one hand, plenty of folks dismiss away anything spiritual as fabricated and manipulated. But don't feel too bad for Gnosticism. It's still alive and well today, too. Plenty of people still think the spiritual is better than the physical. It can look like deeply caring about saving lives, souls, spirits, and caring very little about what happens to our bodies in the here and now. It can look like hypocrisy, living a double life. You believe in God over here, but then you kind of just live however you want to over here because it doesn't really matter because you believe in God and grace and you're good. It can look like lots of things. But if something's real, then it's got to be real in all the arenas all the time. So we're still left with the same question. What is real? Is the physical real? Is the spiritual real? Is neither real? Are both real? And I'm not going to be able in the few minutes that I have remaining to irrefutably prove the reality of Jesus or the existence of the Holy Spirit or show you a photograph of the human soul. But I can't echo what John did in his letter. I can tell you some of the things that I myself have experienced my own person. First, though, an illustration. When Megan and I were about to get married, I was doing some reading, because reading will fix all of your marital problems. Um, I was doing some reading, and I came across the idea that when you enter a long-term committed relationship with another person, you're no longer merely two separate people, but a new third thing gets birthed in the process. Uh, 
Megan was Megan, I was Matt, and then our relationship was a new thing, a combination of the two of us. You might think of this third thing as Meganat. <laughs> the book noted that it was crucial for each of us to take care of Meganat. If I only cared about myself, then Meganat would shrink and suffer and potentially even die. And to this day, I conceptualize our relationship as having those three parts. There's Megan, and then there's me, and then there's us. And over time, us has grown, and us has changed, and us has expanded and matured. And if you ask me at any moment how Meganat's doing, I can tell you, like, how it's doing. It's our connection, emotional, spiritual, physical, birthed by the love that we have committed to each other and nurtured by the experiences that we have shared in this life together. And this illustrates, I think, what John is talking about when he says that we can be in the Son and in the Father. Without getting too deep into all the workings of the Holy Spirit this morning, my understanding is that the Spirit is the member of the Trinity that we actually experience directly. Like when we talk about experiencing God, we're talking about experiencing the Spirit of God. The person of Jesus has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, but the Spirit has been given to us and remains with us. And it takes our hands and it pulls us into this joy-filled relational dance that exists within and between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit is what enables us to have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we can really experience the Spirit of God in a direct and personal way. And it's incredible that that can happen at all. For example, when I was traveling from town to town prayerfully asking God where to start a church plant in Essex County, Megan and I had just eaten breakfast at a place called the Artist Cafe in downtown Haverhill. It's now called Caldy's Cafe because nothing stays the same in downtown Haverhill. And we were walking to our car, and all of a sudden, as clear as day, a thought came to me, and it was, this is where you'll put the church. And I didn't hear a voice, but the experience was so startling that my breath caught in my throat and it stopped me where I was walking. And Megan walked a few steps and turned around and I said, I think this is where we're supposed to be. I was overcome, overwhelmed by a sense that God, that God was with me and guiding me and helping me and talking to me. And that doesn't happen all the time to me, but my life has been punctuated by dozens of moments like that one, reassurances that have stopped me in my tracks. And to be honest with you, I'm pretty sure those moments would happen far more often if I was paying more attention. And I think this because every few moments I get disoriented or I get really scared or I get really angry or I feel really lost internally and I go away from the distractions of my normal life. I go away from the pressures and I seek the Lord. And every single time that I've done that in the past five years, when I've taken that day to get away, I have always, always, always experienced an encounter with the Lord. God bringing me back to what is true and good. God showing me a new way to think about myself. God showing me a new perspective that I haven't been able to have on my own. The Spirit of God is alive, and the Spirit of God is active, and the Spirit of God is meeting me in a real way. In all of the major life choices that I've made since being a Christian, getting married, changing jobs, moving into new neighborhoods, becoming a foster home, they've all hinged on, my, on God guiding my steps, on creating a desire in my heart and then giving me the courage to walk forward in that desire, these real moments of connection with God. And John says in verse 1 that Christ is the word of life. Christ is the life that we have. And amazingly, through the Holy Spirit, we are actually brought into direct connection with Christ's life. And now and forevermore, we enjoy direct personal experiences of God. And, and friends, this is the very first thing John says in his letter. 
It's like the starting place. None of the rest of what he says makes any sense if we're not in a direct, personal, real relationship with God. Everything he's going to say about fellowship, everything he's going to say about loving one another, everything he's going to say about being a light in the darkness, it's all rooted in our relationship with Christ. Our sacrifices, our acts of generosity, our words of kindness, our humility, our efforts for justice, our turning the other cheek, our loving our neighbors, it's all made possible because of that foundational relationship that we enjoy with God. The Spirit has come to draw us into that dance into the dynamic, self-giving love that is constantly shared between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. As I close, I want to invite you to reflect on your relationship with God. In the same way that my relationship with Megan is a real thing, Megan Ad exists out there in the world, I think our relationship with God is also a real thing that exists. How are you and God doing? Connected? Close, vibrant, disconnected, stagnant, stuck. If you haven't had much connection with God lately, if Jesus feels far away, if connection with God has felt few and far between, I think some of that's okay. I mean, our relationship with God will ebb and flow to some degree, just like it does with everyone else in our lives. We have spiritual winters and spiritual summers and spiritual springs and then spiritual falls and spiritual winters. But if you're feeling really disconnected, if you know that you're not experiencing the peace and joy and hope that is promised to be truly yours in Christ, if that's your reality this morning, then get away. Like, get away from the pressures and distraction of your life and seek the Lord. And I'm serious about that. Like, take a mental health day. Find someone to watch the kids. Get away from the noise of your to-do list. Get away from the phone, get away from the burdens that you carry internally, take your Bible, take your journal, take your sketch pad, take what you need to take with you, and go somewhere where your body and your mind and your spirit can be still. And in that stillness, seek the Lord. And like any sort of rekindling of any kind of relationship, it might take some time and it might be kind of awkward in the beginning. You might have to push through an hour or so of sort of Weirdness in order to get reacquainted with what it feels like to even listen to your own heart, let alone listen to what the Lord is doing in your life. But I promise that if you take that time, if you create that space, if you seek the Spirit, I'm convinced the Spirit is already ready to meet with you. Like the Spirit wants to meet with you and is present to you to rekindle your connection with God. Will you care about yourself enough to commit to going away and seeking the Lord in the stillness of your own heart and mind and soul and body. Because God cares that much for you. God cares that much to be in real relationship with you. Amen?